Okay, I just wanted to uh, make a couple announcements on this recording for our web listeners that don't get a chance to hear the announcements that we do on Sunday mornings. Um, two things. One is that we started a new class called Seeing Jesus in the Old Testament, <clears throat> and it's a pretty in-depth look at types and shadows from Genesis to Malachi. We're going to just go through a whole lot of them and 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 how they speak of Christ and our salvation in Him. Um, we've already had two classes, one this morning and one last week. The first one's already up there. The second one that we did today will be up uh, probably later today or tomorrow. And uh, those are on a – if you look at – go to the homepage on the left side, there's a, a new link called – Jesus in the OT, Jesus in the Old Testament. Click on that, and it'll take you to the page where you can download them, or, or you can uh, sign up for the podcast. You can go to the podcast page and uh, sign up there. It's nothing you, if you haven't done podcasts before, it's, that's nothing you pay for. It's just a way to tell your computer to download the latest messages without you having to get online searching for them. So, um, again, that class is available uh, for people now. And the other announcement is, though there has been a a uh, publication online called "The Lie and the Light," um, I that that publication that has been available on our website for those of you who have read it uh, was more or less just four sermons put together and cleaned up. Um, several months ago, I decided to start working on a project where. I basically scrapped that and started over and wrote a book uh, called The Lie and the Light. Same title. It's the same kind of guts, but I expanded it a lot, added a lot to it, um, and that just became available this week. And that's that's available. Uh, you can actually order that as a soft cover um, book, bound book, uh, on our off of our website. If you want to, you go to the again the, the menu bar on the left side. Click on books. It's a new link there, and it'll take you to. You can see the the book uh, cover there, and click on the. Uh, you have two options. You can either if if you uh, don't want to buy the soft cover, you can click on download PDF, and you can read the PDF for free. Or you can click on purchase soft cover, and it'll take you to a page where you can buy that book. But again, uh, this is a totally different uh, redone and expanded version of uh, the the publication that has been online by that title up until now. If you haven't read the PDF in the last three days that's been online, then you haven't read the one I'm talking about. Uh, it's it's totally new. So that is now available in those two form, formats. And also, I just want to let everyone know, I am, I've been wanting to do this for years now, but I'm actually rewriting uh, not I, but Christ. Not I, but Christ is our uh, comprehensive um, introduction to the reality of of knowing Christ and His death, and His burial, and in His resurrection, living by the life of the Lord. And um, I have started to that. That's again. That was more of a um, that, that was more of a, a book that was put together from audio teachings in spoken form and so I started that one over as well I'm keeping kind of the some of the guts of it and the overall outline but I've uh, been greatly expanding that and that is going to be uh, printed and available on softcover soon hopefully in the next few months I'm not sure when I'm done with it I uh, most of the chapters that I've written of that book now are things that aren't even part of the original Not Abbot Christ book so it's going to be quite a bit uh, more comprehensive and, and even bigger than what we have available now. So just be looking for that. That'll be available soon, uh, both in PDF for free if you want to just uh, download it to your computer and read it on your on your monitor, or available to uh, purchase a soft cover version of that as well. So that is it. Uh, okay, we are in. We are in Ephesians 4. You can turn there if you want to. We're working through the book of Ephesians, and we've come all the way to Ephesians 4, 13. And uh, th- th- this is probably one of the greatest um, statements of purpose 
that I know of in, in Scripture. I, there, there's a lot of great statements of purpose. This verse, it's just, it says so much in so few words. And um, it's kind of one of those rare times where Paul just gives a real succinct statement, both of what, you could say both of the what and the how. The what and the how of the eternal purpose of God. He tells us what God desires and how God achieves it through a people. So let me just read that verse and we'll jump right in. Uh, Ephesians 4.13. It says, Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So much... uh, <clears throat> so much comes into my mind when I read that scripture. Back when we were, if you remember, back when we were in the beginning of Ephesians 4, and we were talking about a number of things, um, the unity, uh, one mind, you know, one, or one faith, one spirit, one baptism. I kept jumping ahead to this, to this verse, and, uh, and I did that because it more or less sums up everything that Paul has said so far uh, in this epistle, and frankly, it sums up the purpose of God. It sums up the means by which we attain to that purpose. It's 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 a it's a, just a declaration of God's purpose in this one phrase: a perfect man, a perfect man. And it is a declaration of the the way that that perfect man which is a corporate man that's not a perfect doesn't say perfect men or perfect women it's a perfect man one head joined to one body one body living by the life of that head not trying to act like that head not trying to imitate that head but a, a body that is filled with the life and glory of that head and makes and becomes the uh, the Experience and expression and glorification of the life that is in that head. A perfect man. But then there's this, this statement that, um, that that comes about through the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. And I want to start just with the, uh, the latter, the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. And then we'll come to say more about the... Uh, the perfect man here in a few moments. But I want to say just, just uh, categorically that it is, it is only through growing in this faith, growing in the knowledge of the Son of God, the unity of the faith, that, we, that anything of God's purpose is actually attained. And we need to hear that. We need to hear that God's purpose is arrived at by the unity of the faith because because so many are seeking purpose in the body of Christ through some other means. First of all, we invent our own version of purpose, and then we labor towards that in whatever way makes sense to us. And nobody that's doing that thinks that they're doing that. But it is, it is foolishness and it is presumption for us to be working towards any other end by any other means. And that should really frighten you in a good way. I don't mean terrorize you. I I just mean put the fear of God in you, as they say. Just a little rabbit trail having to do with that. I don't... uh, I was thinking about this as I was writing these notes. I don't know what the initial experience is like when our <clears throat> when our bodies die i i know that when that happens to me i will be in christ even as i am now and i know that i will not receive at that time a greater salvation than the one that i have now because salvation is christ that much i know but i i do suppose that i will come to comprehend become aware of reality, that salvation in a greater way. I I think that when we're separated from the flesh and the world of type and shadow, there will be a new awareness of truth 
to the extent that we have failed to see it while we are in the body. And I don't really know how that works or how that looks, and I don't really care to know the specifics. Honestly, I don't. It doesn't matter if you, told, if you had happened to know and told me, it wouldn't make any difference at all in my life. But what I do care about is the probability that man will see the truth face to face and most will have to realize at that time that their life contradicted it. That their life contradicted the truth. The last thing that you and I should ever want is to face God, either in the opening of the eyes of the heart or in the death of the body or any way at all, but to face God having given our natural lives time and attention to something that ends up being contrary to him, contrary to his purpose, to look in his face, so to speak, with the awareness that I was saved as one passing through fire, and yet I had lived my life as an enemy of the cross. See, that, that to me is an extremely sobering concern. Not, not a fear. It's not a fear in my heart. It's just a fact. It's a fact that lives there. And, and maybe you don't think about that very often, though I, I think there are some of you who probably do. I do. Think about that uh, quite a bit. I find myself thinking about purpose much of the time. I seem to, seem to have this awareness that, that sooner or later the little bubble that, that you know, my little bubble of life and identity and purpose and imaginations that I've created for myself is bound to pop and, and it will leave only his. I think about that all the time. I really do. I, my purpose will one day give way and only his will remain. Frankly, I'd rather that be sooner than later. Jess and I were uh, recently, we were having a talk about what motivates people to know the Lord. We're talking kind of about different, different personalities, different personality types. And some people are this way, some people are that way. And some are gifted and, you know, in this way and, and, and others in that way. And we ended up kind of moving on into talking about why it is that some people seem to have a heart for the Lord. And, uh, and what is a heart for the Lord? And why some people don't seem to have a heart for the Lord, and it doesn't really matter how much you talk to them. It doesn't seem to be something that they want. And, and, uh, and somewhere in the midst of that conversation, she asked me, what, it, what is it that, um, what is it, uh, for me personally, she, she asked, what, what motivates my heart to pursue the knowledge of God? What keeps me going in that, you know, for, for that direction. And I didn't even have to think about it. I, uh, I know it, it's, not, it doesn't, it's not my personality. It doesn't have anything to do with that. It, I, 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 and I don't think it has anything to do with my particular gift mix or my interests or, or even really my upbringing, although I'm thankful for that. For me, that's a very easy question to answer. And... The answer to it is quite simply this overwhelming realization that I haven't been able to ignore ever since my first real encounter with the Lord, my first real view of Him, that God has no opinions. He respects no opinions. God has and is and defines reality. And everything sooner or later, despite Whatever resistance in our heart, whatever resistance in our will or mind, our actions, sooner or later, everything that has fallen short of that purpose has to reckon with that. There's, you, you, you know, who, it's kind of like this, who do you think you're kidding thing that just plays like a tape in my head. You know? Whenever my heart gets set on anything other than, than him, you know, it, sooner or later, I start hearing that voice. You know, who do you think you're kidding? What do, you, what do you think you're doing? And even as believers, to the measure that we have fallen short of purpose, we're going to have to face into that. You can face into that now, or you can face into that later. 
And I'm not talking about condemnation. Seriously, don't go there. If you're thinking condemnation, don't even... Condemnation doesn't make sense in Christ. Condemnation is spent in Christ. I'm just talking about living the truth or living a lie. I'm talking about the fact that you can't pull one over on God. And you can't claim ignorance either. You can't. God is always seeking to reveal His Son in you. And ultimately, at the end of the day, the only reason we don't see is because we don't want to. So I'm saying all of that, I kind of went off on that rabbit trail, because it's those sorts of thoughts that I come to in my mind when I read Ephesians 4.13. Verses like Ephesians 4.13, where there's a real description, a real portrayal from God's point of view through the Apostle Paul of, of purpose and the means to that purpose, then something inside me says, pay extremely close attention to this verse. It deserves every ounce of attention you have. It's something you'll have to reckon with whether or not you ever want to. It's the only reason I created. So with that said, uh, like I said in the beginning, I see in this verse the purpose of God and the means to that purpose. And I want to... I'd like to spend most of our time talking about the purpose, but I doubt I'll really get to a whole lot of that um, today. That's really the reality that's been in my heart. Most of you probably realize that in the past several weeks, I've had my heart uh, ever since, I think, the, the trip down to Arkansas a few weeks back, just in the car at night. Just the Lord is kind of dealing with me on some things, and, and, uh, and, and it's the words purpose and glory, which are pretty much, they're bound up together in my heart because pur the purpose is glory. And uh, I just kind of had that in my heart. I've been a little bit frustrated in some of our groups, feeling like I had a new view but not new words to describe that view, and it came out sounding the same. And, but anyway, it's been on my heart. Uh, and uh, I'll try to get to that as soon as I can here in a few minutes. But I want to say something first about the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Re really, those two things are, are, are the same. The faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. They're not different things. Faith is God's, is God's perspective. It is, it is God's view that is wrought in your heart by the Spirit of God. And it brings you to the true knowledge of Christ. It brings you to God's view of His Son. God's view of salvation. God's view of righteousness. God's view of truth. Everything that, that God sees as He has uh, finished and accomplished in Christ... Faith is that view, that reality being, being written in your soul. It's not the knowledge about God's Son. That doesn't do anything to your soul. That just kind of settles in your mind. But whenever I'm teaching from the Bible and I come across the word faith, I feel like I have to, and I also feel like I want to, but I feel like I have to stop and remind us that we're not talking about what many understand faith to be. If you've grown up in the church, you've heard the word faith probably more than you've heard almost any spiritual or biblical term. And yet, in the mind of most people, faith is what you, are, you, you and I believe about God. For most, faith is something that you, you believe to be true. It's something you want to be true. It's something you hope is true. It's something you count on being true. It's really synonymous with belief for, for what seems like the majority of believers that I encountered, and certainly it was for, for most of my life as well. But the problem with that is that it's wrong. Faith, what do you call it on the, uh, on the SAT or the ACT where you have those questions where like A is to B as C is to blank? There's a name for that. Anyone know? You all failed? No one remembers. There's a name for that. But anyway, so here, here's, my, here's my one of those. Faith is to belief what seeing is to remembering. Faith is to belief what seeing is to remembering. Faith is something entirely supernatural that happens in the light of Christ's appearing. It is a spiritual seeing of Christ and all that is real in Him. Belief 
is something that happens in the mind of man. There's nothing supernatural about belief. Beliefs can be created by faith, but faith is never created by belief. Belief can exist in your mind after the soul has seen Christ by faith. But belief is just something the mind of man thinks is real. That's all that it is. You have to understand that. Faith is what the mind of Christ shows you to be real. Belief exists even when there's no light. There's all the difference in the world. The problem with confusing belief and faith is very much like the problem that would exist if you tried to walk around today in the memory of yesterday's light. Go ahead and try to just walk around today in the memory of the light that you saw yesterday. Now go for a drive in your car and see how that works for you. I guarantee that you will be very quickly reminded of the difference between a present view created by light and a memory that is retained in the mind without any light. The two are very much different. Sometimes people look at me a little strange for making a huge distinction between faith and belief, but the distinction is, is so much more than words. They, I think they would quickly understand the importance if I put them in a car and I asked them to drive me to the airport based solely upon the memory of light that they had the day before. Memory is not a present experience of what is real. Similarly, belief is not a present experience of who is real. On the other side of that coin, seeing in the natural is a present experience of what is naturally real, and faith is a present experience of who is spiritually real. One time I was sitting with somebody that was asking me a lot of questions and jotting down some of my answers and um, they were not jotting down notes so that they could bring these things to the Lord and ask them to see by faith. They were, they were jotting down notes so that they would have right answers. Uh, jotting down notes so that they would know what this verse meant or how to answer a person when they asked this specific question. I didn't say anything, but I wanted to tell them that they might as well just throw those notes away. Because it doesn't matter one bit if you commit true answers to memory and repeat them to people. Just as soon as you turn them from statements of faith into truths that you believe, you have re entirely removed any power and substance from them. You might as well not even know the answers because you still actually don't know the answers. So belief is not really much more than a memory. It exists in your mind because of a memory of something you've learned or something you've seen. Someone says, I believe God is mighty. And you say, oh yeah, why? And they say, well, because one time I saw him part the Red Sea. Well, see, that's not, a present, that's not a present experience of God. That is a belief based on a memory. Someone else says, I believe in the five points of Calvinism. Well, that's nice, but those are really just five things that you heard and they sounded right and you lined them up with some scriptures and now they exist in your mind. But those beliefs are absolutely powerless. See, you can live your life by them, but it's still just your life. Can you hear what I just said? You can live your life by beliefs, but it's still just you living. And right there is precisely the difference. The enormous difference between faith and belief is that only in light, only in faith, can you live, can you walk, can you abide. You cannot live in belief. You can live your life by belief, but every religion in the world does that, and that just produces a variation of you. 
it's always going to be your life. You can live your life according to beliefs, but that's still you living your best for God. Faith is something altogether different. Faith is the mind of the Lord. And, it, and in the light of life, as John says, in the light of life, you can actually live in and by the life of another. In his light, it is no longer you living by a memory of what you think is good or bad, or by a memory of what this verse means. In his light, it's not you trying to remember your beliefs and apply them to your situation. In his light, all things are done out from the reality and person and will and nature of the one who lives in you by new birth. That's the difference. That's faith. Faith is a participation in the mind of the Lord, working in your soul that allows you to live in and by that mind. So the life that is lived by faith is the life of the Lord. When you're walking by faith, Christ is living in you. Christ is dwelling in you. Christ is occupying his land. I want to repeat that again. It's very important that we understand it. Faith is a participation in the mind of the Lord, working in your soul that allows you to live in and by that mind. So that the life that is lived by faith is the life of the Lord. When you're walking by faith, Christ is walking in you. And that's why Paul says in Ephesians 3.16, we spent time on this verse several weeks ago when we got to Ephesians 3.16. He's praying for the church. He's praying for those in whom Christ dwells, in whom Christ is, you know, they have been born of the Spirit. He says in chapter 1, I've heard of your love and your faith and I rejoice in that. And now he says in Ephesians 3.16, I'm praying for you that Christ may dwell in your heart by faith. Well, the life that is lived by faith is the life of the Lord. Paul says the same thing, Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God. Well, someone could look at that and say, well, I have faith too. No, he's not talking about having faith. He's talking about living by faith. And the life that is coming forth from him is the not I, but Christ who lives in me. So, the mind of the Lord operates in our soul according to faith. That's why Habakkuk and, and Hebrews teach us that the just shall live by faith. It's the same thing. Faith is the participation in the mind of the Lord working in your soul that necessarily allows you to abide in and live by that life. That's what, you know, Jesus, John 15, talks about abiding in him and how they have, can't do anything. They could do, a, they could do a lot of things that amount to nothing, but they can't really do anything unless they abide in him. And then he goes on to comfort them by saying the spirit of truth is going to guide you into the truth. The spirit of truth is going to awaken faith in your soul so that abiding in me is a present view, a present reality, and not a belief system. Not a belief that you are, you know, even the most exciting belief is not faith. The measure to which it stirs your soul and makes you want to fall on the ground and do cartwheels and sing for three hours. Faith is something different altogether. I'm not saying that faith won't make you do those same things, but I'm just saying that faith and belief are two different things. One is the mind of the Lord being written in your soul. The other is the mind of man believing a thing. Life, the life that is lived by faith is the life of the Lord. Well, on, on the other side of that, contrary to that, belief is a participation in the mind of man. It's either an experience of your own mind and your own beliefs, or maybe it's someone else's beliefs that you've taken onto yourself. But either way, the life that is lived by belief is you. It might be you trying to do the seven steps to Christian growth. It might be you trying to obey the uh, Ten Commandments. It might be you trying to become an apostolic end-time warrior. Whatever it is, it's you. It's the very you that the cross put away. And I've said this before, but 
in the New Testament, the word belief and faith are, are the same Greek word. We, we distinguish in English, to, we, we, unfortunately, we don't have a, uh, we don't have a form of the word faith that is a verb or a participle. You know, nobody says, I faithed the gospel. We say, we change the word. Even though it's the same in the Greek faith, we change it to believe. I believe the gospel. I don't know that very often we think about how supernatural faith really is. It is, it is completely and entirely a miraculous reality. It, it, is, it is nothing less than the actual mind and light and person of God being shared with the human soul. I appreciate the way T. Austin Sparks write, writes about it. He says, um, For the first glimmer of the knowledge of God is a miracle that has to be wrought by which blind eyes which have never seen are given sight, and by which light comes as by a flash of revelation so that it can be said, Blessed art thou, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. Every bit of real light which is in the direction of that ultimate effulgence, the revealing of the glory of God in us and through us, every bit of it is in Christ and can only be had in Him on the basis of the natural man having been altogether put aside, put away, and a new man having been brought into being with a new set of spiritual faculties. This is a complete miracle. And in the light of that miracle, we can bring forth the life that is in us through new birth. Apart from faith, nothing of what God has given by grace is accessed or experienced or known. You are not accessing the reality of your salvation by believing that something is true. You are accessing it by faith, by the light of life shining in your soul, participating in that thing that you believe. Faith is a participation in the one who is in you through the light of life shining and showing you where you are and what you are and where he is and what is real. Faith is an experience of your salvation. And when it is known, when it comes to be known by the agency of the Spirit, by the reality of faith, then it necessarily brings us to unity. Faith shows us what God has already done, what is already real. And, and there's no room in the light of faith for your thoughts to the contrary. It, when light shines, it necessarily removes any opinions that were created in darkness. In the, in the very same way, faith is always crowding out your opinion. It doesn't leave room for your neat ideas about Jesus doesn't leave room for any purpose that you've created for yourself or for the body of Christ. doesn't leave room for your theologies that came out of the natural, the natural man. It, it only allows for the truth that exists independent of you and yet has been deposited into your soul. Light shows you one thing and it shows it to you according to God's view. So then without question, those who are growing in true faith are also growing in the unity of the faith and the unity of the knowledge of the Son of God. I told somebody in one of our groups this week that if you met somebody that had absolutely nothing in common with you in the flesh, I mean they were absolutely from the other side of the world and everything that could be similar in the flesh was totally different and that person was having an experience of faith. That person was coming to a God-given, spirit-given faith. And it doesn't matter what part of the world they are from or culture or color or age, that person would be seeing the exact same thing as you. Faith sees one sun by one light. You know, just as a side note to that, it is the mind of man that pretends that God wants all of the varieties of human culture and color and age and race to worship him in their own unique way. I know that that sounds politically incorrect and maybe is offensive, and I don't mean it to be so, but I've often heard preachers espouse this idea that God wants to collect an assortment of colors and cultures and ages because he loves the variety that all of them bring to the table. 
and because he's working different and unique things in all of them. Well, that's just not true. Certainly people from every color and culture and age and race and gender are invited into Christ. That is true. That is absolutely true. And he has in his son people that have come out from every tribe and nation and all of that. But God isn't seeking something different in any of them. God sees and reveals and glorifies one son and it is always according to one faith, one view. The same son is being formed, the same son is being seen, the same son is being exalted. The same son is sharing his view with everyone in whom that son is being revealed. It's not many and different. It's one. God is exalting that one in the many. Not making the many try to act like the one. So if I met a 94-year-old dancing Somalian pirate, which might happen, that was having Christ revealed in him, that was coming to faith, I guarantee that he would be seeing the exact same thing that I am seeing if faith is involved in either of us at all. Faith is the light of life in which we come to know and live by the mind and the person and the nature and the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is nothing less, of, less than that. It is nothing short of that. We know the Son of God in that way. So our verse this morning talks about coming to the knowledge of the Son of God. But see, the knowledge of the Son of God it speaks of is the supernatural experience of faith. You don't know Christ apart from God-given faith. That's how you were born again, whether you ever realized it or not. You came to what might have just been the very smallest flash of that light that shined in your soul, but God gave you the faith to see His Son and say, Yes. And that faith is meant to increase and expand in your soul until all of you, every corner of your soul is saying, Yes, not I, but Christ. If you're listening to this right now and you're thinking, I'm not sure I know faith in the way that you're describing, that, that's okay. Admitting that is actually a very, very good thing to do and a good place to start. So don't condemn yourself and don't compare yourself. Just ask the Lord in your heart to open the eyes of your soul, to open the eyes of your heart and show you the difference between faith, faith and belief. Because the journey of increase, the journey of glory, the journey towards a perfect man begins when faith begins operating and increasing in our soul. It doesn't begin when we memorize the New Testament or discipline our flesh. It begins when faith puts off one man and brings the increase of another. It's so important that we understand that. I need to understand that I do that every day. Bring my pathetic blindness before the Lord. And say, God, I need to see by your eyes. I need the faith of the Son of God. Because only by that faith. I said it in the beginning. He, he gives them the, the object of his, his goal, the, the end for which he is steering all things. And he gives, he gives the means. And the means is the faith. Romans 5.2 By faith we access the grace in which we stand. Well, that's exactly right. Apart from faith, we will never access and experience and participate in and bear in ourselves the image of this perfect man. But that's where growing in faith takes us. It brings us to the reality of what Paul calls a perfect man. It doesn't say, like I said before, it doesn't say perfect man. It's not talking about you. We need to get ourselves out of the center of that verse. The perfect man is Christ glorified in a people. That perfect man is the man that he mentions in uh, Ephesians 2. One new man. One new man. Christ being the head. We being the body. But see, he uses the analogy. He uses the metaphor of a man because, because it's a perfect illustration of what he's after. It's, 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 it, it, the head of, of, of man is the origin and source of all, all the will and action and thought and emotion that moves through the body. That life which is found in the head fills and floods the body in every cell and in every way and in every digit and every limb and every movement. It is the life 
The life in the head, the will in the head, makes the body become nothing less than the fullness and the expression and the glory of that head. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 1.22. I keep throwing out all these verses in Ephesians we've looked at, but it says, He put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The church, which is the fullness of him, fills all in all. So a perfect man is one who has grown up to full stature. What stature? My, the fullness of my potential? No, throw that away. The fullness of the measure of the stature of Christ. The fullness of him who fills all in all. The one who is becoming the full expression of his indwelling life. Not, again, not a body, not a body trying to act like a head. Not a body saying, I wonder what the head would do. Not, not a body that's waiting around one day to meet the head. Come on, that's not the covenant that we're in. This is a body that is bearing in itself all that the head wills and wants and does and thinks and knows. In God's view and according to God's plan, a perfect man has a body, try to hear this, a perfect man has a body that bears in itself the glory of the head. Bears in itself the glory of the head. That's really what's been on my mind. And all of that I said, all that I just said about faith and all of that was really to bring us to try to bring us to a new view, a new understanding, a greater understanding of the fact that we are called to bear in our, excuse me, bear in ourselves the glory of the head. A few weeks ago, before I went, before the Arkansas trip, I did that uh, little message on uh, Jesus' words in, in uh, John 16. And this is maybe what kicked it off for me where he says, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. And that word bear is the word carry. It's, the, it's not you can't handle it now. It's not you can't understand it now. It's that you can't carry it now. And as I read that verse, it just, it just uh, it struck me in a new way that the reason he isn't saying more to them now is not because just because they can't handle it, because they've seen enough miracles, their mind is as full. You know, it's not that. It's that... The reason he is trying to communicate anything to them is so that they will bear in themselves the substance, the image, the expression, the actual glory of what he's communicating. He would communicate these things to them if they could bear it in themselves. And, and the picture just started forming in my heart that God wants a people that bear in themselves him, his glory. You know, I've always thought more of glory as that thing which... It works through me, you know, like I'm glorifying the Lord through this thing that I do or this thing that I say. But, but the picture started to turn more and then it started to get filled up with the types and shadows that speak of this exact same thing that God wants a people in whom he is glorified. And that's the picture of the body. The body, the body is that, that organism. The body is that vessel. The body is that land, that temple, that whatever, whatever... That plant that bears in itself the increase of the seed, and sure, there's going to be a, you know, an animal walks by and eats the increase of the seed, but, but that's not really how the seed is glorified. The seed is glorified when there is an increase in the plant. The body is becomes the glory of the head when the, you know, you've all seen a, this is morbid, but you've all seen a dead body, and, and what 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 you see there. It looks like the person that once lived in it, but there is absolutely no expression of the life at all in that body. Nothing expressed. Nothing of him glorified or her glorified, expressed, made manifest. But the glory of God's body is a head that fills in every way, in every corner of your soul, inwardly now, not, I'm not talking about you running out to the nations and glorifying God. I'm talking about you being in yourself the increase, in your soul bearing the increase of His glory. 
I've been uh, I've talked about the the Exodus story many times in our fellowship, and I was telling the group down uh, down at the CMI conference that that uh, three times the Lord has really brought my heart back to the Exodus story in a powerful way. The first time He brought me to that, the emphasis in, in my heart, the emphasis that I think that He was trying to bring into my heart was on the uh, on the door, on the blood covered door. Just seeing that as the as our as our as our end. Seeing that the way out of Egypt is being baptized into that death, that 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 our salvation isn't a way out; it's a way in, and that way in is out. But but the greatness of salvation is the is how how He brings us into His death, so that we can participate in His life. And and that was really what I focused on in some of the teachings about that. And then I the Lord kind of revisited the Exodus story with me. And then the next time, if you remember this. I spent most of our time talking about the wilderness and how the wilderness is, is us wandering in unbelief, us wandering, though we have come to this death at the door, we fail to realize what we have come to, and so we wander around resisting purpose but, but demanding provision. We wander around for 40 years, and all God can say to a people that, that, that want the wilderness is, you're going to die here, falling short of entering into purpose. And they do, and I... And I and I focused in on that. Well, here I am kind of back again, back at the Exodus story, but this time the emphasis in my heart and my soul is on the land. And it has to do with God's purpose. Numbers 14, as surely as I live, I will fill that land with my glory. And he did. And he did. He didn't do it in that first generation because they refused purpose. But ultimately, he did. He did it all in type and shadow because he brings it to reality in you. But this, this, this idea, this picture of, of a land, of a people, of a soul actually bearing in itself. And again, I'm not talking about what you do or what you say to your neighbor or, or, or how many things that we call righteous you, you accomplish. Or I'm not talking about God glorified through you. I'm talking about God glorified in you. I'm talking about the soul of man being the only place where the glory of God can actually reside. If God is glorified in something I do, that glory is, is, is not seen as soon as that thing is done. But in the soul of man, if the glory of God fills up the soul of man, then that glory actually resides there. It abides there. It stays there. It, it, it's an eternal weight of glory that you and I bear in ourselves. And maybe nobody can see it. They certainly didn't see it when Jesus bore that glory in his humanity. They couldn't see the glory of God. They saw a Nazarene. They saw a man who spoke in riddles and they thought was demon-possessed and a Samaritan. And yet in that, in that man was the very glory of God and it was exuding out of everything he said and did and yet it was unseen. But the Father saw, the Father saw in that Son the glory of God. And Jesus said, I don't say these things for my sake. I, I say them for your sake. I don't need any reminder that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. I'm saying this so that you'll know. Well, I'm not talking about something that man can see. Even when Peter saw the first glimpse of who Christ really was, Jesus said, you didn't see that by looking at my flesh. You saw that as the Father revealed me in the Spirit. And so, there's a new view that's forming in my soul, and it's a view of, of a people, of God glorified in a people, and it's for the Father's eyes. And don't misunderstand me, it's not that that doesn't have expression in the earth, it does, but the true glory, the actual place where God is glorified in the type and shadow was in that land that he was filling. And in the, and the substance and in the fulfillment of that is the soul that he is filling now. You and I are the body that bears in ourselves his glory. God glorified in the saints. God glorified in the saints. Or Ephesians 1.18 God has an inheritance in the saints. It doesn't say through the saints. The inheritance is in the saints. And so the Lord has me back again in the Exodus story. I know I'm out of time, so I'm going to wrap up here. But the Lord has me back in the Exodus story and the picture that I'm seeing and, and, 
and it's it's coming into a greater and greater realization, which is which is really exciting to me. I, I that God is not really in the greatest way, glorified by a people. That's not really the picture. He is glorified in a people. God swore that he would fill the land with himself, and he did. He filled the land with all things that bore the image of him. He filled that land with covenant relationship. He filled that land with with the reality of a priest taking a people beyond, beyond the veil, beyond the realm of flesh and shadow, into heaven itself. He filled that land with the righteous requirements of the law. He filled it with the blood of the uncircumcised. He filled it with the blood of lambs and goats that show the end of that man. He filled that land from corner to corner with the, with the holiness that's seen, seen by sacrifice and the wisdom seen through Solomon and the strength and victory seen through, through, uh, through King David. He filled the land with all the things that bore his image, even, even as he said to Moses, as I live, as I live, I will do that. I will fill it with myself. And that was the center of the, that was at the very center of the Lord's heart all the time. Jeremiah spoke of the day that Israel, that Israel passed out of Egypt. Jeremiah tells us what was on the Lord's heart. Even right when they painted the the blood on the door, Jeremiah says, Israel was holiness to the Lord in that day. The first fruits of his increase. Jeremiah 2.3. The first fruits of his increase. Isaiah saw the glory of God filling up the temple of the Lord and he spoke of a covenant where the increase of his government and peace would know no end. Isaiah 9.7. We're we're out of time, but I just wanted to mention at least this week, and I'm not sure, maybe I'll pick up next week with that, but that the perfect man mentioned in Ephesians 4.13 is a corporate man. A corporate man that through faith, through coming to the unity of, of the faith, that man is coming to bear in himself the glory of the Lord. That man is the one in whom the Lord has been glorified. He is the one in whom the Lord has had his increase. The Lord has had his harvest, the harvest of the one seed. Amen. Let's stop again.